Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We began in this chapter last week and we continue along. Let's just look to the Lord in a word of prayer as we begin. Lord, nothing we desire compares with you. For you are the only thing that is eternal. When we come to death's door, either ourselves or with someone we love, we're reminded of that reality that this life is just a dress rehearsal for the next. I thank you, Lord, that although everything changes in this life, you remain the same. That Jesus Christ, you are the same today as you were yesterday, as you will be tomorrow as you will be forever. Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us this morning. Give us insight into your word. It is your word. You breathed it. It gives us everything we need to be equipped to live godly lives in Christ, even in these difficult days in which we live. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Notice with me, Romans chapter 13, we're going to read the paragraph again. We introduced it last week, we showed it in its larger context, going back into chapter 12, how this is a part of what it means uh, to really live in genuine love. Um, And he ends the section in verse 8 of this chapter by saying, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Because the one who loves fulfills the law. And in these verses in Romans 13, 1 to 7, we're talking about law. We're talking about law and order. We're talking about governance. We're talking about higher authorities. And he says, let every soul, every person, every suke." Speaking of that eternal entity that you are, that you are more than a body, you inhabit a body, and you will dwell in the same body for all eternity when it is glorified. Stood at a great side yesterday on Aspen Hill there in Jackson, and Charlene's body was laid to rest, but it is not her final home. And that body will be caught up out of the ground and will meet her in the air and she will ever be with the Lord as will we who know the Lord. But when God made Adam, he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living being. You are a soul. As such, part of Baptist distinctive 
theology is the belief in what is called the individual soul liberty of the believer. And then individual soul liberty of the believer is basically the, 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 the doctrine that you are responsible for yourself before God. And so he says to us here, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority, please note that, the people in Russia and Ukraine are wrestling with this. As are people all around the globe, as are you and I, even in the United States of America, there is no authority except out of God. And the authorities that are in existence have been instituted by God. Therefore, because of that, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now notice verse 3. This is important. We will exegete this in greater detail next week. So a governing authority that is placed in power by God and his God's servant is called by God to do something. What is he to do? Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval. Because he is God's servant for your good. But if you are doing wrong, then be afraid. Because he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath through his servant, the governing authority that carries the sword, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. Going back to our soul. Let every soul be subject. And you have a conscience. And for conscience... And it's because of this that you also pay your taxes. Oh, we're coming up on that day. Amy and I did ours this week. Ugh. I don't know what I got paid yet, but at least I got them done. The authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. That was taught to young people in the inner cities of America. That when they are pulled over by a police officer, it's not time to be a smart aleck. Be respectful. It would do a lot to diminish a problem we have going on. What does he say? Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor.
A lot here. Today I want to build on what we did last week. We're going to do a little bit of review. We're going to go a little bit deeper, and we're going to lay some groundwork to actually exegete the text next week. So we're still laying groundwork today. We're talking about the author of authority. I guess I want to begin. Did you do your homework? I hope you did. If you didn't, there's still time to do it. Okay? We're in Romans 13 for a while. There was a flock note sent out this week that had all those four articles. I hope you can take the time to read those four articles um, that relate to the COVID situation. Two articles by Grace Community Church and the elders there with John MacArthur, um, that Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church, and then facing COVID without fear. Important articles. And then and then Mark Devers and Nine Marks Ministries, that is out of Capitol Hills Baptist Church, their response to some of the things that Grace Community Church was saying. I hope you read all those articles and you interact with what's going on there in those articles. Um, and, and I'm not going to reference them really today, but I want you to think about what is being said there clearly. This is a time for the church in America to grow up and be informed. To grow up and know what's going on and to think very clearly about how it responds. As Mark Dever said in his article, no matter what you think of the COVID situation and how Grace Community Church handled that, Mark Dever said in his article, We need to wake up and realize the church is going to have plenty of opportunity in the next few decades to put these principles into practice. It's not just COVID. And so we want to look at these thoughts this morning, and I want us to think about some things related to this that we began to talk about last week. And this is an important thing for us to remember. The principles, as all principles in Scripture that we read, these principles apply no matter when you live or where you live. If you were a first century Christian living in Rome, in that context, what God said, those principles, these principles applied. They were living under Caesar. People struggled, as we read this morning, whether or not to pay taxes to Caesar. Where you live. Man, I am a flag-waving American. I am thankful to live in America. I am thankful for the heritage that we have been blessed by. Not everybody on this globe lives here. A lot of people want to get here, though. We are blessed. We live here. We have a context in which these principles are to play out. It is different than the context in which Chinese Christians find themselves. But the principles are still the same. The principles are clear. But let's just, let's just own it right at the beginning. These applications are sometimes very difficult. Some of the applications are really tough. And we want to wrestle with these things. Because we need to think very nuanced thoughts. We need to think clearly 
about the truth as Paul is expressing it here by the Holy Spirit and how this relates to the entire message of the Bible. Okay, we talked about jurisdictions. And I don't want to take a lot of time with this this morning because I want to cover some new ground. When we're talking about a jurisdiction, we are talking about entities instituted by God into which flow authority. There is, what did he say in this chapter? There is no authority but that comes from God. There are jurisdictions into which specific authority has flowed from the throne of God. Those institutions are the home. God created the home. God created civil government. God created the church. Very few people who are Christian would disagree with that basic concept. The disagreement comes on how this works out in practice. How do these jurisdictions relate to each other? And I told you last week, Adolf Hitler loved Romans 13. It was the one part of the Bible he knew real well, and he loved to quote it to the church in Germany during the Second World War. And he would tell pastors, you must teach your people to obey me. And I laid out the hypothetical last week. So you're a Christian, and you get posted to Treblinka. And your job is now to usher Jews to their death. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to that? Do you think that, and I pose it to you, do you think when you stand before God, and God says to you, why were you involved in, in killing my chosen people, the Jewish people, that you're just going to be able to say to God, well, since I lived in Germany, and Hitler told me to do it, and you told me to submit to the governing authorities, then I had to do it. I had no choice. Do you think God's going to buy that? No. So when we're talking about submission here, and we see in this text that God says, let every soul be subject to the higher authorities, we have to understand that does not mean that God is telling us that we must give unqualified obedience to every authority who would subject us to their will. It is important we note that. Amen. Just like we referenced in the home, in a marriage, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira couldn't say, well, I had to submit to my husband and he told me to do this. So you knock him dead and you let me go on. It didn't flow. She was individually responsible. So we have individual responsibility. So we did a, a flow chart. Let me see if I can, can uh, reduplicate this. So Hitler's flow chart would look something like this. I don't know if you can see that up there. See, God is here, okay, on this side. And from God flows authority. Now, many people would put, okay, so human government is at the top of that list. 
And then under that, maybe it would be the church. And then under that, it would be the home. And we'd do a flow chart that would lay those institutions in sequential order. So from God comes authority, and it goes first to human government, then it goes to the church, and then it goes to the home. And so that's kind of the flow chart. And you're down at the bottom in the ranking if it's just the home. Is that the way it works? Well, we understand the scripture to say, no, from God there are jurisdictions. These three jurisdictions come from God. One is the home, one is civil government, and one is the church. They are independent institutions. They interact with each other in the kingdoms of men. But they act as checks and balances. So when the home gets it wrong and a father becomes abusive, then the civil authorities have to step into that home. But under normal circumstances, when a father is just disciplining his children, the state has no authority to step into that home. But when he gets it out of balance, then the check on him is the civil authorities and the church who comes to bear against him for his sin. So too, when the government gets it wrong, then the church has a responsibility to stand against it. And I want to demonstrate that as we go along here. The church. Let's talk about the church for a minute. I want to just think about this idea of submission and authority. And I want to think about it under two kind of headings. Let's think, first of all, about the church as an institution and what is our role as a church, as the institution of the church, to the civil authorities. How do we relate to them? Is it this way? This way over here on the right, or is it this way? So let's think about the church. And then I want to think about us as individual Christians. Let every soul be subject. And I want to make some application on these things this morning. The first one is this. Let's think about the church. We mentioned this last week. The church is a transnational organization or a body. It's the body of Christ. It's the body, the bride of Christ. It is transnational in nature. We're not just trying to make everybody who gets saved become American. No, God delights in all the ethnicities of the world and in that great diversity, and there is a transnational nature to the church. The, the place on the globe, there's been a huge shift from Western civilization. When we think about the church, the center of Christ's church today is not America. You know where it is? Africa. There are more believers in Africa, on the dark continent of Africa, than anywhere else in the globe, and it is growing in Africa by leaps and bounds, and the African church is sending missionaries around the globe. The African church is quickly becoming the centrality of Christ's body here and now. Not America. But the church is transnational. It's also this word, we use this word sometimes, autonomous. What does that word mean? 
It's in our bylaws, in our doctrinal statement, that the church is meant to be autonomous. Okay, think with me about this word for a minute. Now, sometimes we apply this and we think about it in the sense of denominations. So we say, Emmanuel Bible Church is an autonomous church. We are not tied to other structure. We govern ourselves. Independent church. And we think of it that way. But we shouldn't just think of it that way. When we say the church of Jesus Christ is autonomous, we are saying it is auto, self, namos, law. It is an entity that governs itself. In that sense, the church of Jesus Christ is not under the governance of any entity except Christ. And we are bound to obey his law. And what is his law? The law of love. And if we obey his law, we are pretty well safe in obeying the laws of our land. The church is autonomous. Our nation's founders specifically recognized this in various ways. One of the ways they recognized it was with what we call kind of the establishment clause, that Congress would not establish a church. Another way that our country recognizes it is in this issue, taxes. Now, I want you to think about this one. We read about taxes this morning and Jesus' question. And here he says what? Pay taxes to who you owe taxes. I told you a few minutes ago, Amy and I sat down and did our taxes this week. Because Amy and I, as individual souls, are under the higher authorities as individual souls. But I don't have to sit down with a board of elders and figure out the taxes for the church. Why? Why? Why are we exempt? Because the government, when it was set up, recognized something. The church is autonomous. And they have no jurisdiction over it. That is why we as a church do not pay taxes. It is important you know that. It is a jurisdictional issue. So the church does not pay taxes. Now that's a tremendous benefit and it's a blessing. But it was understood by our founders they had no jurisdiction over the church. A famous English jurist named Blackstone said this, the power to tax is the power to control and destroy. The power to tax is the power to control. The church is exempt because they have no jurisdiction. It's important you understand that. Okay, so when we think about an issue like taxation and the church paying taxes, 
it's not just an issue that is like a side issue. This is an important issue, my friend, because it goes to the heart of jurisdiction. Because if the church in America cedes that point, the church is saying to the state, what? You have jurisdiction over us. That's why it's an important issue. That's why it's a hill to die on. Okay, next one. The church is not an arm of the state whose role is to parrot or implement the state's policies and goals. Please know that. That is not our role. The church is not here to institute and do and just be an arm of the state. Now, Peter the Great is a great illustration of this. That was a play on words, wasn't it? Peter the Great is great. Peter the Great was the ruler of Russia at the end of the 1600s and into the 1700s. He brings Russia out of the Dark Ages and he brings it, he, he wants to modernize it and bring it up to speed with the rest of Europe. Peter the Great, the story of Peter the Great is an amazing story. A guy named Robert Massey wrote the definitive work on his life. You should read it. Because if you want to understand what's going on in Ukraine today, don't listen to CNN. Read history. Read history. Peter the Great builds the Russian Empire. In doing so, what Peter the Great recognized was this. If he was going to control people, what he needed to do was control the church. Now, I'm going to read you a quote from Robert Massey's work. And this shows you why this is important. In time, he does this. He abolishes the national leadership of the church and he makes the administration of the Russian Orthodox Church a branch of the secular government. And everything goes along pretty good at first. By doing so, what he does is he takes away any danger of competitive power. That's what his goal is. But then Massey says this, In time, however, the assumption of state control over the church had an injurious effect on Russia. Individual parishioners would go to church to find salvation and to find solace from life's burdens and to live in the community of the church and believers. But a tame church, which only occupied itself with private spiritual matters, failed to stand up to successive governments on behalf of Christian values in questions of social justice, and it soon lost the allegiance of Russian society. When Lenin comes in, he takes the organization of the Russian church and he puts it under him in a greater way as a puppet of his arm. And if you notice the history of the last hundred and some 20 years, 100 years, the Russian Orthodox Church never speaks out against the leadership when it does things like what it's doing today. Never. Why? Because it's just an arm of the state. 
And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I don't know if you ever read him, he wrote the Gulag Archipelago, said that the whole problem in Russia today is directly tied to the failure of the church to be the church. The church is not an arm of the state to just do what the state wants to do. The church is the conscience of the state. The church is to speak truth to power. And I want you to go to the book of 1 Kings with me for a minute. The book of 1 Kings takes us further in the history of Israel. David dies, he goes and he sleeps with his father. Solomon comes to the throne. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. Solomon had taxed the people very, very heavily in order to do all the public works that he wanted to accomplish. The people come to Rehoboam, his son, and they say, please, lay off the burden of taxation a bit. Ever been there, done that one? We're talking about taxes today. He's like, ah. Rehoboam goes and he gets advice from his counselors. The old men say, boy, listen to the people. If you will, if you'll lay off the taxes for a bit, they will love you and they will serve you. His young advisors say, don't listen to those dumb people. Put the hammer down all the harder. Rehoboam, like an idiot, listens to him. And he puts the hammer down on taxation. And what do the people do? They revolt. Ten tribes go with a man named Jeroboam. From that action, we have the divided kingdom of Israel. The northern tribes, ten. The southern tribes, who stay true to the line of David. Immediately, Jeroboam recognizes something. Three times a year, every man in my country is going to go to Jerusalem to the Feast of Passover, to the Feast of Pentecost, and to the Feast of Weeks. And they're going to trail down to Jerusalem, and they're going to worship God there, and it isn't going to be very long until I am deposed from the throne and Israel Israel is reunited. So Jeroboam, in his greater wisdom, says, we are going to set up idols in Beersheba and in Dan. And these idols are going to facilitate the worship of Jehovah God. And instead of all you guys having to go all the way to Jerusalem, which is so inconvenient, just go close to home and worship God at my idols. And Jeroboam brings God's wrath down on himself. God sends a prophet to him and confronts him. And that prophet speaks truth to power. The next story concerns Jeroboam and his son. Now, there are many things we could look at in Kings. We could look at the story of Ahab and Elijah to demonstrate this. But I want to look at this one because hardly ever do we look at this story. This is an interesting story. 
And I want you to look with me in chapter 14, 1 Kings 14. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it's, it's, it's a great story, but it's long, so I can't read the whole thing, but let's follow what happens. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. Okay, so this is Jeroboam's first son. He's the what? Heir to the throne. And he gets sick. Jeroboam says to his wife, wife, arise, put a disguise on, so it will not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And I want you to go to Shiloh. Behold, in Shiloh, there's a man, his name is Ahijah the prophet. He is the one who said to me that I would be the king over these people. Take with you ten loaves of bread, some cakes, and a jar of honey. Go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the kid. Jeroboam's wife did so. She got up. She went to Shiloh. She comes to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to ask something of you because her son is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. She knocks on the door. She is pretending to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she is coming up to the door, he says to her, Come in, you wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be someone you are not? I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go and tell that bum of a husband of yours. And Ahijah gives to Jeroboam's wife some news she does not want to hear. He says to her, because your husband has sinned and erected altars to a false god in my land, he will not prosper on the throne. He says to her, I'm going to knock him dead. He says to her, just so you know, This child who is sick is going to die. But count it a blessing. Because that child is going to be buried. And that child who is going to be buried is the only one of your offspring who will actually make it to the grave. Every one of your other offspring is going to be eaten by dogs. How would you like to have to get that message? She gets up and she goes home. She opens the door to go into her house and baby Abijah dies. The church's job is not to simply put up and shut up. The church's job is to speak the truth. 
And I will submit to you that just as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said of Russia, the same is true of America, that it is the failure of the church to be the church in America that is directly related to where we have gone as a land. So this is what he says about the church. How about us as individual Christ followers? I'm going to go down for a minute because I put my glasses here and they fell on the floor and I don't want to stomp on them. (laughs) Sorry, I had to find them. I did not want to do that. Okay, so let's talk about us as individuals. Christ followers. What's the rule? We talked about this last week. What's the rule? The rule is let every soul be subject. That's the rule. My friend, the exceptions are not the rule. The rule's the rule. God expects us as his people to live our lives in submission to the governing authorities in the land in which we find ourselves. That's the rule. We will develop that more next week. But I want to go a little bit deeper thinking about these exceptions because it relates to us as individuals. So what are the exceptions to the rule? We all want to find the exception clause. So what's the exception? Okay, here's the first exception. I know this is my exception. I don't like the law. Right? Can you think of some laws or some dictates that are put on you by governing authorities that you would say, I don't like? I can think of a bunch. Now listen, that is not a part of the exception. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean diddly squat with God. If I live in America and I am a citizen of this land and the governing authorities say to me, this is what you are to do. My friend, I am bound in my conscience before a holy God to obey it. And when I do not... And there are times I haven't. Right? As you. When I disregard it, it is sin. It is wrong. Just because I don't like it don't mean nothing. How about this one? I just don't want to do it. I don't want to obey that law. I guess that goes a little bit deeper to the issue because it talks about my heart. I don't want to. Once again, that's the wrong answer, right? That is not a part of the exception. World War I. You're a doughboy and you're in the trench. And you were drafted. And you're in a regiment. And the order comes down. Boys, at 0800 hours, you're going over the top. And you're going to go across no man's land. And you know, because you saw other regiments do the same, that there ain't a one of you hardly coming back. 
and you're in that trench, and you're saying what? I don't want to. Well, who does? I don't want to. I'm 18. I got my whole life in front of me. I got a girlfriend back home. I got a job I want to do. I got a life I want to live. I don't want to do that. It ain't fair. You know what? It don't matter. It's my what? Duty. And somewhere we've lost that word. The Ukrainians are finding out right now what that word means. Duty. It's not about what I want to do. My life is not my own. So what are the exceptions? Okay, Christ followers, here's... Let's think about it this way. Thomas Schreiner, who is a, I think he's Southern Baptist, wrote a lot of books, great thinker, good theologian, said this. Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. That's not, I don't like the law and I don't want to obey the law. It's not that. This is what? Contradiction. It's not the same. It's apples, oranges. So here's the rule. Here's the rule. Whenever the state commands what God forbids, or the state forbids what God commands, the duty of the Christian is what? To obey God rather than man. So think about the wording there. Whenever the state commands something that God forbids. Pharaoh says to the Hebrew women, you will kill your male children. You will offer them to the gods in the Nile River. And you're pregnant. What are you going to do? Moses' parents hid their son. And it tells in Hebrews 11, they were commended for their faith because they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Why? Because the king was commanding something God forbid. They had a duty. Now I want you to notice the word duty. I don't want to. I don't want to get in a fight. I don't want to get at odds with the governing authorities. How about you? I don't want my name on the news. Any more than that 18-year-old wanted to go over the trench. But what is God, what are we seeing here? It's not my option. It's my what? Christian duty. And if I fail in that duty, I have disobeyed who? God. There are many illustrations of this. Illustrations abound. The Hebrew midwives, Moses' parents, Rahab and the spies, Daniel at the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's just the old covenant. We can think about John the Baptist. 
The list goes on and on and on and on and on, and it goes all through church history when Christians that are just like you and I were faced with a dilemma, and they said, I don't want to. I don't want to do this. I just want to live my life. Just leave me alone. And then they come to you and they say, do this, and it is wrong in your conscience before God. There's duty. And duty calls. The church of Jesus Christ, i got to quit. I, I said last week, the church is not an anarchist organization, nor is it a revolutionary organization. But it is this. I want you to get this word. The church... And believers are called by God to be subversive. This guy named Eugene Peterson wrote a book on pastoral ministry. I love the book. In his one book, he wrote a chapter called The Subversive Pastor. It's one of the best things I ever read. He says this, when you're a pastor... You get called to do all these things like politicians sometimes. Kiss babies and bless people. And people want you to show up. And they want you to smile. And tell them what they want to hear. But that's not your job. Your job is not to tell people what they want to hear. Your job is to tell them what God wants them to hear. Amen. And so a pastor is called to be subversive. He is to step into a situation and he is to assess it and he's to say, what is God doing here and what does God want me to do here? What does God want me to say? God expects us as Christians, as believers, to be subversive. To step into people's lives and to not just be and do what they want but to be and do what God wants. That is the movie next week we watch. I want you to be here. The movie of Sabina plays right on this theme. You have two Jewish people, Richard and Sabina, Jewish people, become Christians. He's called by God into the ministry and Nazi Germany comes a-walking in the door. And you will be amazed at how they responded. It is very subversive. But not with guns. You know what the word is? With love and forgiveness. And you'll be amazed. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, we thank you for your word. Bless us as we sing. And as we leave, in your name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together? My life is in you, Lord, my strength is in you, Lord, my hope.
truth that was spoken today. Lord, may we go and walk worthy of being your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.